Hosea is a stunning, if difficult, prophetic book set within a time of severe political turmoil in 8th century Israel. Kings are dying, alliances are being formed, a showdown with the Assyrian Empire is imminent, and within this historical reality, the people of Israel have become rebellious and unfaithful. They have even included worship of other gods into their normal routines. All of this informs the well-known image of Hosea's marriage to an unfaithful wife, Gomer, and the birth of their kids. Much like his own family, the book of Hosea tells a one-sided love story of a God who, despite all evidence to the contrary, will not give up on his people. Join us as we explore the depth and radical faithfulness of a God who won't let go in the book of Hosea. I have been really uh, surprised at the feedback that I've already received just from this book coming up. I've heard from a number of you that this is your favorite book of the Bible, which strikes me as very strange given its questionable content. This is a a prophetic book about um, the lack of faith in the Israelite community. They are so wayward that the controlling image in the book is that of a unfaithful wife. We'll be unpacking that over the next few weeks. Uh, My goal with this book is also to explore just what prophecy is, because I think a lot of us come to that term with with some baggage. Most of the time we believe that prophecy is something where someone is telling the future, looking into a crystal ball almost and saying how things are going to play out. Whereas in the Bible, the prophetic activity more often than not is someone who is preaching to a given community at a given moment for a specific purpose. And we can see how this uh, sort of act can inform our understanding, our purpose in this moment. Hopefully we'll be able to see that tonight. But in classic Josh-like fashion, we are beginning this series with one verse. Hosea chapter 1, verse 1. says this, The Lord's word that came to Hosea, Beeri's son, in the days of Judah's kings, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, and in the days of Israel's king, Jeroboam, Joash's son. The word of God for the people of God. And this might be another week where we could uh, put some other responses for you because it's really just a superscript. It is a, 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 a sentence that is attached to a book so that we know the historical context in which this uh, prophetic work is situated. However, there is importance there for us, especially when we're going to launch into a, a however many weeks series on this book, for us to know the specific context is important. If you've had a nickel for every time I've said something about the ancient Near Eastern context of a specific book, you would have a lot of nickels and we could put them together and fund this whole operation. So we should maybe do that at some point. Um, But what we see here is a specific prophet writing and speaking into a, a, a specific historical context. But before we get into that, however, I think we need to lay the groundwork even more basic. And I'm going to tap into some teaching stuff here. So let's put on our nerd caps for a moment and learn a little bit about the Bible. I don't mean this to be demeaning, uh, but just so that we're all on the same page. Our Christian Bible has two sections, the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament takes up about two-thirds or so of the Bible, and we can break the Old Testament down into even more categories, especially if we are going into classic Jewish um, categories of how they understand 
the text. For example, they begin uh, with five books in their sacred texts, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And now class, this section of text is called the what? The Torah or the Pentateuch. Some people would call this um, the five books, the Pentateuch, or also the Torah. This is the first dominant section of the, the Hebrew Bible or our Old Testament. The Torah consists of these five books that lays out the foundation, uh, moving from creation on through Moses, uh, leading people or beginning to lead people into the promised land. The second major section of the Old Testament is called the Nevi'im. Say the Nevi'im. The Nevi'im, that means the prophets in Hebrew. Now there's two different sections of this major section in the book. We have the former prophets and the latter prophets. The former prophets are books like Joshua and Judges and Samuel and Kings. We would not, if we have any sort of church baggage, we would not think of these stories as prophetic because all they're doing is telling the story of Israel moving from the wilderness where Moses has led them into the promised land with Joshua and then into leadership through Judges and then Kings. However, throughout this section, we still see prophetic activity. Even going back into the Torah, we see prophets at work. Abraham is noted as a prophet in Genesis chapter 20. Moses is the prophet par excellence in Deuteronomy, and his story goes from Exodus through Deuteronomy. We have Deborah, who is noted as a prophet. And throughout Samuel and Kings, these historical books that, that chronicle um, Israel and Judah, the rise and the fall, we see the prophets at work. Whatever we think about the prophets, especially when we go immediately to Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, the major prophets, and then the minor prophets or the book of the 12 there at the bottom, they are prophesying specifically within this context of kingship. People are attempting to lead God's people but they're being pulled away by foreign gods. They're being pulled away by foreign uh, policies and political allegiances. They're being pulled away by all these things. And the prophets raise up to say, do not follow after these foreign gods. Do not become invested in these women. Do not attempt to set up this alliance. Trust in who God is. Is. And we see with Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and the book of the 12, where we're going to be hanging out for a few weeks, these latter prophets, they're all set within this context of the history of Israel and Judah. The third and final section of the Hebrew Bible is called the Ketuvim. Say Ketuvim. So we have the Torah, we have the Nevi'im, which is the prophets, and we have the Ketuvim. The Ketuvim is basically just the writings. It's a catch-all uh, category for anything that was written late, and a lot of the stuff that's included is poetic in nature. So like Psalms and Job and Proverbs, it's all like this high literary output. Um, we've got the Song of Songs, which is poetic, Ecclesiastes, which is a wisdom book, Lamentations, which is uh, lamenting the destruction of Jerusalem. Jerusalem. We've got all of these texts that are later in the game, but I want you to note something that's interesting here. There's a couple of ways in which the Hebrew Bible looks different than our Christian Old Testament. One example might be Ruth. In the Hebrew Bible, Ruth is not set up as a historical book. Ruth begins in the days that judges judged. So in our Christian Bibles, Ruth is set right after the book 
of Judges. However, in the Hebrew Bible, it sits right after Proverbs, which is very interesting because Proverbs ends with that beautiful poem, Eshet Chayil, a, a valorous woman. And throughout the book of Ruth, she is noted as a woman of valor. And the Hebrew Bible editors say, you know what would be cool to put Ruth right after Proverbs chapter 31 to give people an example of what a woman of valor looks like. They were strategic in how they placed these books so that they could get certain points across. You might also note that Chronicles is in the Ketuvim. It's in the last section of the Hebrew Bible. Now, I don't know if you guys go through your Bibles each year and try to read through the Bible in a year. Uh, I know that if we do attempt that, most of us kind of lose it around here, like the uh, middle of Exodus or Leviticus, and it was, a, it was a good month of January, but once we get that far, like rules, 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 I don't know. It's kind of strange about all these uh, bodily functions and how it renders people unclean, but I don't know how that necessarily impacts my life. Have you been there? Okay, <laughs> good. Um, you might find another stumbling block if you can make your way out of the Torah or the Pentateuch. You might find another stumbling block because you read about all these kings in Samuel and Kings. You read about the rise of Saul and David and Solomon and how the, the kingdom gets ripped apart and divided into two. And you read about all these kings and how they do evil in the eyes of the Lord and they don't follow after the ways of David, so on and so forth. And you read like 40 some odd chapters of this. And at the end of it, you go to Chronicles, which begins with a nine chapter long genealogy. And all God's people said, amen. <clears throat> Nine chapters of so-and-so begat so-and-so and so-and-so begat so-and-so and so-and-so begat so-and-so. And I've told you this before, like that gets me going because of what the author is attempting to do if you understand why this book even exists. Now, if you look at this chart here or this division here, Chronicles is the very last book of the Hebrew Bible. It's written after all of the atrocities. Israel has been decimated by Assyria. Judah has been decimated by Babylon. The people have been removed from the promised land. They're wandering. They have no idea if God even loves them. They have no idea if God's promises will mean anything at all. And the author in the midst of this, in a brilliant move, says, I'll show you you're still family. I'll give you nine chapters of names that take you all the way back to Adam Son of God. It's, it's so beautiful how this is, this is put together. But if you can make your way through those nine chapters, and I know, and you know, the way that you make your way through those nine chapters is, one, two, three, four, chapter 10. Like for most of us, that's where Chronicles begins. But you'll be sadly disappointed because it seems like you'll be reading all the same stories again that you already read in Samuel and Kings because it takes you back to David. And you're like, why is this guy telling us these stories again? But what's happening here is the author or the editor who's writing way after the authors and editors of Samuel and Kings is saying, it's important for us to understand these stories now in light of our experience, in light of the fact that we have been destroyed and sent into exile, that we have seen how God's promises seem to be broken and shattered 
But the author and editor of Chronicles weaves it all together and says, you guys are still in the family and God is still at work in you. Chronicles 1 through 9, even if it is a genealogy, it preaches, as they say. There's, there's a message there for us. But just to see that the Ketuvim, it, 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 it leads in, in different ways, in unexpected ways, and especially when we are so programmed to our own Old Testaments. But here I don't even want to assume that we know a lot about the Old Testament because it gets a bad rap for being old, not important anymore. But there is stuff in there that is integral for our lives as Christians, in my opinion. Altogether, the Torah, the Nevi'im, and the Ketuvim, it creates this um, acronym, if you will, that's pronounced the Tanakh. And some people in the Jewish interpretive community refer to their Bible as the Tanakh. And now you know that when you hear somebody say the Tanakh, it refers to Torah, Nevi'im, Ketuvim. Be blessed. We'll see you guys next week, okay? (laughs) May that just edify you and keep you going. Uh, but I do think that's important. But now for us today, we're going we're gonna to focus in on the book of the 12, or as some of you might have known them, the minor prophets, not Isaiah, not Jeremiah, not Ezekiel. These books are massive. But then we have these 12 prophets who are lumped together, who have been lumped together strategically, which we will not get into tonight. But if you see those 12 books together as a collective, they almost, um, they rival in, in the same size as Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Taken together as a collective, they have a message for the people, and I believe they have a message for us today. So we're going to be looking at the book of the 12 to try to understand how we can fit in our um, study of the book of Hosea. Now the 12 are Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. I still have that memorized because I went to Christian school. So every year we put on this little play and one year for, it was like a Christmas pageant or something. And I don't know why they had the minor prophets going, but I was Joel and I wore a white bathrobe with a red sash that said Joel on it. And there was this song where I was like, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah. And like, you just had to jump up. I wasn't very good at acting, so I didn't get big starring roles. Although one time I was cast in a musical as Herod, and I got the role, and then two days later I was like, yeah, I can't do this, I'm not gonna do that. (laughs) So my mom was like, you gotta go tell the music teacher, and I just kind of shuffled down. I was like, yeah, I don't wanna sing that song, because I just was kind of goofing around, and my whole life could be different. Could be on Broadway right now (laughs) if I had taken the role of Herod. I think the whole play got canceled, I don't remember. I just took, took it down. But anyway, um, so these, these 12 books here, these 12 prophets that have a very distinct message in their uh, specific context, each book should be read, and you, you should understand this already, um, on its own, according to what it is that it is attempting to communicate to the audience. Each of these books has an underlying, uh, specific, and sometimes overlapping socio-political, socio-religious, and socio-historical context. Man, that is nerdy, isn't it? But it is so important because when we just open up our Bibles and we just plop down, especially when it comes to the prophets, do me a favor, and just tonight when you get bored, just throw yourself into the book of Isaiah and start reading and see how, see how you do. 
I mean, it's like, it's weird, it's weird stuff. The prophets do weird stuff. Some of them walk around town naked for three years. Some of them like are not allowed to mourn when their wives die. Some of them, have, they, do, they do really weird stuff. There's that whole story about cooking bread over human excrement. And the prophet's like, no way, I'm not gonna do that. And God's like, okay, you can cook it over cow excrement. You know, these, these prophets are not like the guys that you want to have dinner with. They're, cra- they're crazy guys, sometimes on the fringes of society, right? But when they're prophesying and talking, because their, their context is so far removed from our own, it's difficult for us at times to figure out what in the world is going on. Each book has a specific and sometimes overlapping socio-political, socio-religious, and socio-historical context. One scholar says this, and I'm going to break it down into bite-sized chunks for us. He says, the 12, these books, um, Hosea through Malachi, covers a period of roughly 400 years, including the period of two kingdoms, the time of Judahite statehood, exile, and restoration. These centuries were times of international upheaval. With Amos, the earliest prophet attested in the 12, Israel and Judah lay on the western perimeter of the Neo-Assyrian Empire. Late in the seventh century, that Mesopotamian power fell to another, the Neo-Babylonians. And then midway through the sixth century, Persia, an empire with its roots to the east of Mesopotamia, decimated the Babylonians. We've got two different things that are happening here. In the first chunk, we see that these books, they cover a period of time that assumes our knowledge of the two kingdoms, Judite statehood, exile, and restoration. And that's where I want to focus our attention tonight. The second section of things when I'm reading, you're like, I don't know what this guy is talking about, probably is due to this. The political stuff that's happening outside of the Bible, the stuff that is happening around the periphery of what is going on that is making these prophets go into action. Things like the Neo-Assyrian Empire. Remember, these were the guys who knew how to wage war. Their main claim to fame was siege warfare, and they would build these battering rams. We made mention of it last week, and they would, they would just take stones and dirt and build a hill up to the, the wall around the city because if you had a strong defense, you would be on a hill, you would be elevated, and your city would be walled. But these siege engines could roll up like a battering ram and had this big uh, sort of, it was like a, a battering ram, and it would just run into the wall, and then it would go up and down and like start to break the wall apart. These people knew how to wage war and Israel and Judah were scared of what they might do to them. But then later on, that empire got defeated by the Neo-Babylonian Empire. And then later, the Neo-Babylonian Empire got defeated by the Persians. Do you feel like you're in history class right now? Isn't it beautiful? There's so much to learn and so much to think about. It's so beautiful. Okay. So tonight we're going to talk about the period of the two kingdoms, but before we can do that, we really need to look at the prequel, which is the period of one kingdom, because before the kingdom was split into two, Israel and Judah, there was one. Israel and Judah together was called the time of the united monarchy, and there were three kings in this time frame that were ruling over the people. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, the people go to Samuel, who is the prophet, and they say, we want a king. And he says, that's not a good idea. Because when you have kings, they're going to put your sons to war and they're going to do all kinds of stuff with your daughters and they're going to tax you. You don't want that to happen. But God says, go for it. 
So the, the, the united monarchy begins with Saul, who's a train wreck on wheels. In like the first, uh, the first chapter, he's like hiding in the baggage because he doesn't want to be anointed king, even though he's like a head taller than everybody else and very handsome. Do you ever wonder what that means for the biblical authors when they say so-and-so is handsome or so-and-so is beautiful? Like what was the, what was the standard back then? Like what did Saul look like? to attract that sort of acclaim, okay? Just side note, you can think about that over dinner, maybe talk about it with a friend. I don't know, just tweet your thoughts, could be good. Saul was a train wreck, but then David, who is the man after God's own heart, who is uh, anointed to be king, not because of how he looks, even though he is said to be handsome, uh, not because he's huge, but because God um, has chosen him, because God knows his heart. David becomes a king and David's uh, kingdom is established through God saying, David, your kingdom will last forever. David's son, then Solomon takes over after David's death and Solomon, it starts out great. He asks God for wisdom. We've got all these great stories about how Solomon was doing everything right. But then Solomon had a problem. Solomon loved the ladies. And this was not good news for Solomon. God shows up three times specifically in in Solomon's ministry to keep saying, hey, Solomon, if you walk in my ways and obey my laws and commandments, just like your dad did, if you can do that, in 1 Kings chapter three, it says, then I will give you long life. In 1 Kings chapter nine, again, God says, if you will walk before me just as your father David did, then I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever, just like I promised to do for your dad. There's a condition here on Solomon's, uh, the length of his kingdom, because Solomon is being asked for obedience. And then finally, in 1 Kings 11, God says to Solomon, do not intermarry with these foreign women. But then the text goes on to say this, Solomon clung to these women in love. He had 700 royal wives and 300 secondary wives or concubines. Do the math there. That's a lot of ladies. You know, he has a problem. And I don't know if this is just hyperbolic or what. I mean, we could even, maybe there was only, you know, less than 700. That's still a lot of ladies. After God says, do not intermarry with them, they will definitely turn your heart towards their gods. And this is exactly what what happens. It says Solomon followed um, certain goddesses of the Sidonians and Milcom, the detestable god of the Ammonites, because he's married to all of these women. And he's setting up pagan altars so that they can worship in the way that they need to or want to worship. And this is moving them and the kingdom away from what God has for them. Later in uh, 1 Kings 11, it says, the Lord said to Solomon, because you have done all of this, instead of keeping my covenant and my laws that I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom from you and give it to your servant. Even so, on account of your father, David, I won't do it during your lifetime. I will tear the kingdom out of your son's hands. This is setting up the context for where we are going to be in Hosea because when we see this united monarchy of Saul and David and Solomon, Solomon's sinfulness leads the kingdom into two different, um, two different ways with Israel in the north being established as its own kingdom and Judah in the south being established as its own kingdom. In 1 Kings chapter uh, 11, later on in the story, we meet a figure named Jeroboam, son of Nebat, And a prophet comes up to him, 
the prophet's wearing a new robe. And when he sees Jeroboam, he rips his robe into 12 different parts, gives Jeroboam 10 and keeps two for himself and basically says, Jeroboam, you're going to be in charge of 10 tribes of, of Israel. I'm taking the kingdom and I'm ripping it in two. He says, I will give you 10 tribes, but I will leave the other uh, king one tribe on account of my servant David and on account of Jerusalem, the city I have chosen from all the tribes of Israel. And now, this is where I want to be because we're uh, looking here specifically at the period of two kingdoms, which is important for us to know something about. And this is where we meet Rehoboam, Solomon's son. So we've just heard that Jeroboam is going to get 10 tribes of this, of this kingdom. And Rehoboam is still thinking that he's going to take over for his dad and get all of this stuff. Now, there's a story in 1 Kings chapter 12 where all of this hits the fan. Rehoboam is asking for advice from elders to see. Now, my dad ruled like with a, with a hard hand, okay? And he goes to the elders and says, how should I rule these people? What will it take for me to win their affections? And the old elders, they come back and they say, um, if you would just lighten our yoke, if you would just allow us to, um, to exist in a way that is kinder, so to speak, than your father, then, then this will go well with you. Rehoboam hears this advice. And then Rehoboam turns and goes to the friends that he has grown up with. And he says, guys, these old men over here are telling me to lighten the load. What do you think? And this is where it gets super interesting because their advice is, is very different. And last week I told you, um, or at least I mentioned on Facebook, that we were going to get away from penises for a while. Uh, but we're not. I lied to you. We've got, one, we've got one, more, one more week. The young people who had grown up with Rehoboam said to him, this people said to you, your father made our workload heavy. Lighten it for us. Now this is what you should say to them. My baby finger is thicker than my father's entire waist. So if my father made your workload heavy, I'll make it even heavier. If my father disciplined you with whips, I will discipline you with scorpions. So I have just graduated college, okay? And I was going right into seminary. And my first three months of seminary, I took an intensive Hebrew class. Three months of Hebrew instruction, four or five hours a day, all summer. You go from knowing zero Hebrew to reading the Hebrew Bible at the end of three months. It was glorious. I just lived in the classroom, completely like inundated myself with the Hebrew language. And then this was around the time when Lost season one came out on DVDs. So I would go and learn Hebrew in the morning. Then I would watch Lost DVDs in the evening. It was awesome. I would have Wendy's for lunch every day. And I don't know where that puts me on the scale of really gross human beings, but I was just enjoying my time. But towards the end, we were reading Hebrew narrative. And this was the passage that we were translating. And we come to this line where his friends, his young friends say, you know what you should do? Forget those old guys. They're old. This is what you should say. You march up and you say, listen, my baby finger is bigger than my dad's waist. And we're translating this and we're looking through the, the lexicon and you notice that the word for baby finger can also mean a couple of other things in the Hebrew language. This is a euphemism. I'll, I'll take us there if we have to. <laughs> this is a euphemism here for the king saying, listen, 
My stuff is bigger than my dad's thigh or my dad's waist or my dad's entire loin section. This is the advice that the young people are telling this guy. I don't know if I should hang out more with middle school boys or what, but like, I find that to be absolutely fascinating. (laughs) This this is the the advice that he gives, and he goes on to say, I'm going to make it even worse for you. You want to throw that stuff in my face about lightening the load? Forget that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ratchet it up a bit. My dad whipped you. I'm going to put scorpions on your head or whatever. Like, things just get really weird. He doesn't go with the advice of the old people. And what happens is the kingdom is ripped away from him. The people respond, why should we care about David? Why should we care about Judah in the south? Why should we care about Jerusalem? Why should we care about this bum named Rehoboam? Who gives a junk about him. He's making all these euphemistic sayings about a guy that we kind of liked. I don't like this. So why should we care about them? We have no stake in Jesse's son, in David. It's better to, for us to go home. And then it continues where um, in verse 18, it says, when Rehoboam sent this guy to them, to Israel, all of Israel stoned him to death. King Rehoboam quickly got into his chariot and fled to Jerusalem. And then here's the line in verse 19. Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. The kingdom is split into two. And this is important because it sets up a time of Judahite statehood. Now, we've got these two different, um, two different kingdoms two different kings, two different political systems, two different potential alliances. We've got Israel in the north under Jeroboam. We've got Judah in the south under Rehoboam. And these systems, they continue on for hundreds of years. 200 years, Israel is is going after it. And they're finally destroyed by Assyria. And it's at that time when Judah stands alone. Judah as an empire stands for 330 years. They also have 20 kings, the same number as Israel. And Judah eventually gets destroyed in this time of Babylon. I say all this to say that there's like political stuff going on in each of these books. And it's important for us to know who's talking about who and when, because this is what the prophets are engaging in their specific ministries. There's a time when the kingdom is completely ripped apart. And there's a time when Israel ceases to exist all together. Finally, we have this uh, moment of exile and restoration where Israel has already been destroyed by the the siege engines and the Neo-Assyrian empire. Judah is on its own, reigning and ruling, but then they finally get destroyed. They're sent into exile, but when the Persians take over and destroy Babylon, nobody really seems to care what happens to the people. So they march back to the promised land and they try to figure out what in the world is going on. So when we look at these books, all 12 of them, we have to see each one in its specific context to know what is happening. Hosea 1.1, the Lord's word that came to Hosea, Beri's son, in the days of Judah's kings, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, and in the days of Israel's king, Jeroboam. This is actually Jeroboam II, Joash's son. This is when the word shows up. At this time, Israel is still operating in the north, and Hosea is attempting to reach them to say, stop doing what you're doing. This whole book is uh, centered on uh, religious idolatry. It's, it's um, looking at the priests and the leaders who are taking people astray, 
attempting to get them to trust in political alliances, not to trust in Yahweh. It's moving them away from trusting in God. Whereas Amos, who's looking at the same stuff, is talking about issues of social justice. Don't, don't um, pervert justice. Care about the widows and the orphans and the poor. Hosea is talking more about religious systems. Your priests are going in a completely different direction. All of your worship is not worth anything. That You guys are, are going after this in the wrong way. And what we see in the book of Hosea is this love story where God's people keep doing God wrong over and over and over again. And Hosea is attempting to address this. But what's so beautiful about this book is regardless of all the sin, regardless of all the recalcitrance, regardless of all of the unfaithfulness, you cannot escape the love of God. It keeps coming back to these moments of restoration. It keeps coming back to this hope where God will still bring his people in. And Hosea is announcing this, this message that's filled with tension, like Israel, if you're going down this path, you're gonna get it, but God will not let go of you. Guys, if we keep going in this direction, we're going to face the Assyrians and they're going to demolish us, but God cannot let us go. God will not let us go. And there's this moment of tension in this book and the image that dominates is Israel as an unfaithful wife. And even in the midst of her adultery, God still brings her back. So one scholar says, as the great preacher Paul Scherer once remarked, God did not stop speaking when his book went to press. The word of God, once spoken into a specific time in history, continues to act in human life in each subsequent generation. And so we who stand in continuity with that sacred history through Christ, we find the word of God as spoken to Hosea acting in the specificity of our lives also. Let me boil that down for us. Hosea remains important for us today. I love that first line. God did not stop speaking when his book went to press. The reason why this is included is because even in that superscript, and this is nerdy stuff, but just track with me for a second and then we'll, we'll conclude. We're good. It's okay. What you can tell is the people that wrote it wrote well beyond the time of Hosea. The kings that are included go well beyond Hosea's ministry. And what this tells us is all the stuff that Hosea was saying to his audience that seems to end before Israel gets destroyed by Assyria, the editors came back and said, we should still hear this message. We should still hear this love story about God for his people. We should still try to categorize our lives underneath of this, this leading. God still has his eyes on us even if this story of Hosea has seemed to be wrapped up. God did not stop speaking when his book went to press. He continues to speak to us today, which is why we can take an old dusty book like Hosea and then actually have it be meaningful for us here and now. I was struck at the end of uh, my preparation. I mean, I know what just happened. You got 30 minutes of history. You got a lot of me dancing around because I like the Old Testament. Makes me happy. There's a lot of things we can talk about and nerd. But like, when it comes down to it, who, who cares? I'm hopeful that as we begin to move into this book, we can continue to lay this groundwork. And students, if this is your last week with us or if this is one of your last weeks with us, I'm confident that one of the things that you will take with you is whenever I open this book, 
it's important for me to know something about what's going on. And I'm happy about that because sometimes we totally take that for granted. I think it's important for us to lay a good foundation so that we can understand what this text is talking about so that God does not stop speaking because it doesn't always just happen where we sit and just spontaneously things come to us. Sometimes we have to get our hands dirty and wrestle with the text. But I'm also um, hopeful that over the next few weeks that we can begin the difficult process of analyzing who we are in the story. If the main controlling image is God's people as a wayward wife who keeps wronging him over and over and keep being seduced by the idols that are present in, in their life in this moment, which for them were very literally other gods foreign gods that they were going after. And for us, it's different. For us, the things that seduces us are the same things that have seduced people for so often. Money, sex, power. These are the things that, that force us to move over away from God's leading, away from God's um, will for our lives, if, if you want to use that phrase. But here we can analyze ourselves and think, am I faithless? Am I the wayward wife? Am I the one that goes through these, these motions and these uh, religious routines, but I'm not really connected to them and I just do them and I know I'm just doing them? And if we can enter into this story that's set within a specific moment in history, we've got Israel in the north, we've got Judah in the south. For us, how is God's word still speaking? How is God's word still convicting how is God's word still moving us beyond the guilt and shame to hear the, the note that's underlined this entire book? God cannot and will not leave you. And how many of us in the seats that we occupy right now need to hear hope? We need to hear about God's faithfulness in the midst of our faithlessness. We need to hear that our story is not over but we also need to be held accountable for the direction in which we are going. Thanks again for listening. We invite you to join us in Salisbury for one of our weekly services on Sunday evenings at 5.30 p.m. Whatever your story, there's room for you here. Again, if you'd like more information, please visit our website at restoresby.org. See you next week.